Welcome to the Intersection of Faith and the Culture. This is the Wall Builder Show, and we appreciate you joining us. You can find out more about us at our websites, wallbuilders.com and wallbuilderslive.com. I'm Rick Green here with David Barton and Tim Barton. Later in the program, Congressman Josh Burkeen will be with us. But Tim, we're still sharing heroes of history for a couple more weeks. Who is our hero of history today? Well, this one is Lemuel Haynes, and Lemuel Haynes noted for several reasons. Uh, he was a pastor. Now, it's Black History Month. He was a black pastor, but he was the pastor of largely white congregations, and there's even some interesting details uh, for some of the different churches he pastored. One, he pastored for nearly 30-plus years. Uh, he was removed because uh, during the War of 1812, that was considered by many to be Mr. Madison's war. His congregation uh, was in favor of seceding away from the Union because of what James Madison had done. And he said, guys, this is crazy. We're not going to do that. That's a bad position. His church got angry and they voted him out because he was not in favor of secession. Nonetheless, if you back up and look at his full story, so many fun details uh, along the way, which if we start from the very beginning, sadly, he was abandoned by his family when he was just a baby. He was adopted by the David Rose family. Uh, They raised him as their own he ended up uh, getting an indenture to work on a farm. When the indenture finishes, it's the beginning tensions of the American Revolution. So he signs up to be a Massachusetts Minuteman, which I also think is super cool. When we think of the Massachusetts Minutemen as kind of your initial first responders, those doing the initial training, getting ready to stop the tyranny, the oppression, if the British military came in, and to think that there was at least in this case, at least one black man was part of Massachusetts Minutemen. And we actually think there was more than that, but this is one we can identify for sure. No question, Lemuel Haynes was part of the Massachusetts Minutemen. As the course of the revolution goes on, he's uh, part of the military and serves actually in some noted battles under Ethan Allen, who was pretty a pretty noted commander, the leader of the famous Green Mountain Boys, was in some noted battles, but then he actually got sick, had to leave the military uh, because he contracted typhus. And a lot of people have died because of this infection. He gets out of the military. The, the military, the, the war is still going on, uh, but he's no longer in the military, decides he's going to go a different direction with his life. So what he does is he gets into ministry-related stuff. And like a lot of college graduates back then, uh, he could speak all, all these different languages. He also studied Hebrew as well as Greek and Latin. And so as a minister, he was well-educated, which is common back in that day. And so as Tim mentioned, he, he pastored these white congregations. He pastored in Vermont and New York and in Connecticut and Massachusetts, et cetera. And it's interesting because of his service in the military, his commander in chief had been George Washington. And boy, did he love Washington. And, and so in his churches on Washington's birthday, uh, he would preach a sermon about George Washington, his commander in chief. And he would talk about his military exploits and the revolution as well. And even through life, he just remained a fan of Washington. So as a result, he joined what was called the Washington Benevolent Society. And that's a group that really promoted George Washington's farewell address, the the greatest political speech ever given by a president. It's what Washington gave to say, hey, if you want to stay on track, here's what you need to do. And so he promoted those principles all over the nation, which is one of the reasons he didn't like Andrew Jackson as president, because he thought Andrew Jackson violated those principles of religion and morality that Washington was pushing. And so he, he's just a really super cool guy. Um, and, and by the way, he had sermons that were published. Now, back then, you wrote out your sermons. You didn't preach extemporaneously. You wrote it out, and you read your sermon on Sunday. And he wrote out over 5,500 sermons. 
And if your sermon was really good and the people really liked the sermon, they would say, hey, would you uh, would you print that? The whole town wants it. And so to have a printed sermon is just absolutely a remarkable step for any minister back then. And he had sermons that were printed and reprinted, and one was reprinted over 70 times over several decades. So it's just remarkable stuff that he had. He, he was a great scholar, great leader, lots of good stuff about him. Well, somebody you can find more about going to wallbuilders.com. You can find these bios. You can read along with us every day. Uh, these are people that we should recognize and celebrate. When you're talking about someone who was part of the Massachusetts Minutemen, served in the military, becomes a pastor, a black pastor of white congregations, has sermons published. This was a noted, important person that today we know so little about. But if you want to learn more about Lemuel Haynes, go to wallbuilders.com and find out more information. All right, guys, we've got Josh Burkeen joining us here in a few minutes uh, on the program. Of course, a new congressman from Oklahoma. We've already had him on the program once. And uh, just really impressed by him. And so we're going to catch up on what's been going on the first few weeks of this new Congress. Yeah, Josh, Josh, we knew him as a state senator. He's been a great guy all the way through. And it's interesting. He is such a biblical Christian in so many areas. And he is just fixated with economic issues. And it's really good to have a biblical worldview as an economic guy. His thing is getting the budget under control, getting the deficit down, getting the debt paid off. He is so fixated on that. But he's good in every area. But he's he's a great worldview guy. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back with Congressman Josh Burkeen as our special guest here on Wall Builders. Have you noticed the vacuum of leadership in America? We're looking around for leaders of principle to step up, and too often, no one is there. God is raising up a generation of young leaders with a passion for impacting the world around them. They're crying out for the mentorship and leadership training they need. Patriot Academy was created to meet that need. Patriot Academy graduates now serve in state capitals around America, in the halls of Congress, in business, in the film industry, in the pulpit, in every area of the culture. They're leading effectively and impacting the world around them. Patriot Academy is now expanding across the nation, and now's your chance to experience this life-changing week that trains champions to change the world. Visit PatriotAcademy.com for dates and locations. Our core program is still for young leaders, 16 to 25 years old, but we also now have a citizen track for adults. So visit the website today to learn more. Help us fill the void of leadership in America. Join us in training champions to change the world at PatriotAcademy.com. Okay, so we're back with Josh Burkeen, and Josh, you've now had several weeks in Congress. You've been through all the, the stuff. Matter of fact, you were centerpiece in, in helping get those rules changes made. So just kind of get an update over the last month. First off, kind of w- what's your response to China, what you see there, what's going on with China? Well, I think that uh, I think most people realize that we projected weakness. We now, in, in the last eight days, have had uh, four Objects shot down, the first one being the one over, over the South Carolina that came over the interior of the United States. And it, again, projection of weakness. And it should have been dealt with over the Aleutian Islands or even over big sky country in Montana. And it was sending the wrong signal for people that are prodding around the edges to figure out decision process in America. Are we decisive um, or are we not? And I am grateful that we've been making some, some decisive decisions in the last, uh, in the last three scenarios. And it's so important that we project strength uh, to China. Yeah, I heard one of the Pentagon officials actually suggesting we might be in a hot war with China by 2025. Um, From where you sit, is that a plausible thing? What stops that? What causes that to happen? 
Well, I believe most people you hear come speak and we're in an economic war. Um, I think that, that China looks at what we're doing to tie our hands on, on the, the global uh, climate, alarmist, climate alarmist front, and I think they're laughing at, at our uh, lack of energy dominance where we had it a few years ago. And I believe that economic strength is, is, is national security strength for us. And I think the best thing we can do in facing China is, in addition to sending the strong signal, having a prepared military, is getting our fiscal house in order. And China, as most people know, is one of the largest holders of our, of our national indebtedness, of, of, the, of the foreign ownership of our debt. Well, and Josh, too, I think I heard this week that China's bought up like 15 tons of gold. So it seems like they are shoring up themselves. Uh, so if they move to some kind of digital currency or if they try to be uh, kind of the, the world standard for currency, they can say, look at all this gold. We can back it up. The U.S. all this has all this external debt. So I think to your point, uh, that, that's certainly something we're seeing. I'm also curious, though, Josh, with uh, all that we're seeing happening, as you mentioned over the last roughly two weeks, all these encounters we've seen with uh, finally, the military engaging some of these things in our airspace, whether they have been a balloon or these unidentified objects that at this point, the government has not given identification of what those are. Uh, but President Biden said, hey, guys, it's not really a big deal. It's not a problem. Uh, is this something that I, I think a lot of Americans are very curious right now? Is this something that do we assume that President Biden is is still the one calling these shots? Is there someone in the Pentagon who's monitoring this saying, hey, this is a major problem? Is is President Biden not acknowledging what maybe his advisors are telling him? Or is this something that his advisors are saying, guys, it, it really is not a big deal. Leave it alone, even though they've already identified the escalation coming up with China. So I, I think, you know, the Constitution uh, gives the ability as commander in chief to direct our military. And so the president unto himself, and given he has a different ideology that the majority of the House Republicans is keeping information unto himself that many of us are not privileged to. Now, I do. Any member of Congress has top uh, security uh, clearance and can go into what's called a SCIF, which is a, a secure facility, and gain information from permission of the chairman. I'm actually on the Homeland Security Committee. Got my very first briefing last week. Had some questions that I'm asking. But even uh, Speaker McCarthy, uh, and I think China does this on the weekend because they know most members of Congress are home. On, on the weekend for a Saturday or a Sunday. And so most members of Congress, if they can't get into a skiff and get that, that secure facility, are having to wait till a few days later to get information. And as you remember, Speaker McCarthy was requesting the gang of eight when the, when the Chinese spy balloon was, uh, you know, the, the first one was floating across the intercontinental United States. And, and ultimately, it's, it's the commander-in-chief uh, who holds the authority over our, our men and women in uniform. Um, now, of course, we appropriate the funds. Um, that's a part of our, our constitutional duty. But this is why who we put in the White House matters. And if there's someone who, who is decisive and operates a position of strength, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So, Josh, with that being said, I've also heard people over the weekend, there was the massive uh, train derailment uh, and then a huge fire. Uh, that went on with it. And the media has covered this very, very little. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about UFOs or aliens or China and these balloons. And there's some that are speculating that it, it could be uh, trying to distract from maybe what's going on in Ohio. I don't, I don't even know if you saw uh, the, the train to realm with the fire. Uh, is that something that we should pay attention to? Is that maybe a bigger deal 
than what the media is letting on to right now, or was it just an unfortunate accident? Do you have a thought on that? I, I don't know the answer to that. I would be speaking above my knowledge base to, to, to comment. Okay, well, and I appreciate uh, you having the character to not be a politician and just make something up uh, when you well, when you don't know that. Uh, and there is a lot of speculation, and so maybe at some point, uh, if story breaks a little further, we might have you back on and ask you some questions as much as you can tell us civilians uh, who don't have maybe the, the clearances we need. Uh, but Josh, one of the things we, we've talked a lot about, my dad, Rick, and I have talked about uh, some of the Biden policy positions and even some of the stuff that was laid out a couple weeks ago in the State of the Union, uh, where he, you know, said some things like, hey, Republicans want to take away Social Security and Medicaid. And of course, there were some boos in the chamber. Uh, they, a congresswoman called him a liar. With with all that President Biden said in the State of the Union, do you have any strong thoughts or any responses, any counterbalance to some of what was said that would be important for the American people to know? Yeah, I, look, I think there was theater on display. Um, I think anyone in public office has to continually do a self-examination and ask himself the question, am I operating out of conscience and what is, is truth, or am I just projecting to, to my own image management benefit? And I think there was a whole lot of image management benefit. I think any person with common sense, if they would take themselves out of a partisan viewpoint, would look at that and say, you're going to bring up fentanyl? And its destructive nature and, and the fact it's the leading cause of death between 18 and 45-year-olds, 100,000 deaths last year, and we know approximately 75% of those were, were fentanyl-related in America, and you're not going to talk about the correlation between the, the amount of drugs that are coming across an open border? It, it, it's, it's disingenuous. So, I mean, so that, that is one place where the theater is worse, to talk about the Chinese spy balloon. And, and to talk about it in terms of it being a victory was total political spin. It, it was a, it was weakness. It was not strength. And when we talk about the economy, the state of the union, and, and we don't look at and recognize that this $31.5 trillion national debt that the congressional budget office tells us within seven years, with no change, within seven years, we are going to be spending the exact same amount on interest payments, annual debt service, money flushed down the toilet as we are in, in defense of our country. That's where we're headed in seven years. We spent, we spent $859 billion last year on our military defense of our country, DOD. And that's where we're headed within seven years on just annual debt service payments. And so the fiscal state of our nation is one where we have, we have bought into the idea of debt is wealth mentality, as the Bible says. Uh, the, the borrower is a slave to the lender. And this debt is wealth mentality is reflected in, 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 in private. And we keep electing people that, that have bought into it publicly. If we don't get our fiscal house in order, as one economist said, we all know this can't continue forever. And anything that can't continue forever will come to an end. And so I'm greatly alarmed about my country. Republicans and Democrats have to take ownership in their part. Interesting study, guys. I ran across it on justthefacts.org. And if you look from 2009 to 2020, the average congressman, Republican congressman, the House of Representatives, uh, advocated for a trillion dollars more in, in debt spending over, that, over the time frame 2009 to 2020. The average Democrat in that time frame advocated for $14 trillion more in debt, in debt spending. Now, now, when you get to the Senate side, it's a little different. The Republicans on the Senate side, the average Republican senator advocated for about $5 trillion for 2009 and 2000. 
in 20, while the average Democrat in the Senate advocated from about um, for $10 trillion more in, in debt spending. And so both parties have to take ownership. It is true that, that Republicans have spent more than they, than they um, have uh, seen coming into the revenue coffers, but Democrats are unlimited in their spending. And if everyone will stick guilty and Republicans will start living up to fiscal responsibility, there's hope for our nation. But we've got to go back to biblical principles is why I cited the debt as wealth mentality. If we'll go back to some biblical principles and constitutional principles, there's hope for our nation. If we don't, then we'll go the way of history. But Josh, you, re- you read my mind on the next question, and, and that is, you know, basically how much willpower is there, how much desire is there, even on the Republican side of things in, in the House with the majority now, to do that, and, and how much can you do having only, you know, one half of, of, of one branch, um, and, and is this something where it's a finger in the dike for the next two years while we work towards getting a better majority, bigger majority, and then, of course, the Senate and the, and, and the White House? So, you know, I, I, um, we look at history, uh, <laughs> talking to wall builders, right? we look at history, and we know that history can inform us. And so when you look at what happened under a Democrat president, Clinton, in, in 95, and the, the House of Representatives, and they use debt ceiling increase as leverage, you can get some proactive things done. You can actually bring about a, a change on work requirements. You can actually uh, look towards bringing about a balance on spending. It was in, in 2000, we had a very first balanced budget. But you had people that were uh, fixated on it. And my hope is, you know, why I was one of the 20 in the, in the speaker's uh, debate that was saying, I'm not willing to, to um, hand the, the gavel over absent fiscal restraint commitments is because we know that leverage, when you have leverage and you don't use it, you will continue in politics, you will continue with the same results. And so we exerted leverage. Republicans as a whole can exert leverage in this debt ceiling issue. But, but this is, and, and the president knows that, it's why he's trying to um, confuse the American people and for political uh, posturing and talk about Medicare and Social Security cuts, because that's not what Republicans are talking about. We're talking about discretionary spending. We've increased discretionary spending in four years, $300 billion, 30% increase in discretionary spending. Those are things outside of Medicare and Social Security. That's the woke culture inside, you know, DOD. That is the, the, the climate alarmist community in this green technology. It's all the grants. We, we are, we are not operating in common sense. And I think what person out there says that you're spending uh, millions of dollars in grant form to advocate an LGBTQ type ideology in foreign countries, which we are, why wouldn't we rein in that type of expenditure and, and get our fiscal house in order on discretionary spending front? And that's what Republicans are aiming. And the president knows that that's, that's something the American people believe in. That's why he's trying to confuse voters and what he was trying to do instead of you and talk about Medicare and Social Security versus discretionary spending. So, Josh, with other stuff going, you guys have, have you kind of thrown down the gauntlet in some areas. Now that you've got half of one branch, as Rick said, what's your agenda? What are you guys going to do to, to try to create some change? I mean, right now you've got a great bit of sunlight going. You're bringing a lot of things to light that people didn't know about. The hearings are out there. There's stuff going. What's kind of your agenda on the Republican side for what, what you guys can do with one half of one branch? So we use the, the leverage of the debt ceiling. One of the things that I'm grateful to Speaker McCarthy or his, in his agreement is we go back to the 2022 spending levels. That's $130 billion in savings. Now, out of a almost $6 trillion spend, people look at that and go, you know, how big is that? Um, 
any opportunity to long-term turn the trajectory of this thing, we have to take advantage of it. We do have to you know, understand that we've got two-thirds of the government that are under Democrat control. But McCarthy's commitment is to go to 2022 levels. We believe we can hold defense harmless, potentially. Now, that doesn't include the woke culture that needs to be gone after within the DOD. But there are ways to go and look at um, the, the, the 2019 levels of discretionary spending under Republican control and ask people, do you really notice the difference in discretionary spending of four years ago um, in terms of what the programs that you're seeing? Or if you categorize that there's $130 billion uh, of cuts that we're talking about, and almost $100 uh, billion of that is money that was advocated for and has not been even uh, spent under the COVID era. We've got $100 billion that was obligated but not been um, um, even directed to where it's supposed to go. So there's some, there's some real easy pickings if we'll have the courage to do it. And I'll end with this. Since 1985, the 11 spending, greatest spending reform measures have always occurred up next to a debt ceiling discussion. So if we use our leverage, we can get some, some transformative change. Hey, Josh, can you walk through that timeline for us, you know, as far as when that all happens? Has that already come to a head? Is there still time to negotiate? I'm kind of lost on when that is all done. So the debt ceiling, um, we actually, in, in late January or mid-January, went over. Um, we actually went past what was allocated. But we're going to, Janet Yellen is saying that we're going to use extraordinary measures that gets us to June. And so as we, I'm on the budget committee, as we're putting forth a budget, again, in, in, in tandem with what the speaker committed to those of us of the 20 that were, um, you know, advocating for changes before he was handed the gavel to the speaker's credit and to our budget chairman's uh, credit. We are looking at the 2022 spending levels. That is, that is what we're looking at. And so as we move forward in, you know, how we obtain uh, getting there, the budget committee will be running through those numbers. But but we know we're going to start initially with $130 billion worth of savings, and that is where the speaker is going to be, you know, in discussions with the president. And it may be, you know, my hope is it's to a greater level than that. But we, we know the speaker's committed to that level already. Hey, hey, Josh, if I could just – I want everybody to catch the victory there, right, and, and realize because you and the other 19 stood firm, you got the concessions, and now we are living out those concessions. We have a chance – at real savings here and finally stopping the insanity and at least maybe freezing it like you're saying where we were in 2022, but but at least having some significant movement in the right direction. I just I want our listeners to, to pause for a second, soak that in and enjoy the fact that we had that victory and say, you know, a big thank you to the Lord and a big thank you to you and the other 19 for taking your stand. Yeah, it, it look, I will um, tell you that there was a large group of that 20 that every day was was praying. And, and so I don't want to, you know, Dramatize it and, and, and to a greater level it is. The fruit has to bear out, but it has put us on a trajectory where even, um, you know, I would claim even people, people have a perception of our moderate are talking about we've got to have spending cuts. Just the revelation of, of, of people are waking to the, to the reality. We cannot continue to spend like this. And I think even the moderates among our conference are getting it. And I'm, I'm grateful to the speaker of taking uh, that three day four-day negotiation seriously, and leaders apart from him are talking about, we've got to look at cuts. Josh, just going with that, looking forward, uh, what do you think that the Senate's going to do with that? Will they try to sit on it and just come back with the CR, 
or will they they actually try to make cuts over there? I know you don't have control over there. What do you think will happen when you guys deliver your budget over to the Senate? Well, one of the great ideas that came out among the speaker's uh, concessions was that we would send them a continuing resolution, potentially, you know, that we could say, hey, here you go. <laughs> and and would would be at a one percent two percent cut level and force them to respond. But but uh, you know if we end up with a continuing resolution, my hope is that we will uh, lock shields on the house side and demand it be a reduction. That it won't just be a strong charge at the first and then everyone roll over. My hope is that we will stay committed to spending reductions, whether it's a CR or actually we can pull off what. What many of us hope, and that is a return to 12 appropriation bills. This is what the budget committee is assigned to doing under, you know, setting some some uh, some guardrails and spending cap levels. That maybe we can return back to the days of the 95 to 2000 era, era where we balance the budget, where we actually go through 12 appropriation bills and we deliberate to a great level and, and say, is this a priority or is it not a priority, line by line? We sure appreciate you, man, what you've done, what you're doing, uh, the change you brought from the time you stepped through the doors there in, in D.C., I mean, the, the rules changes are just amazing. I don't think people understand how much that meant to the to the country overall. But thank you. Thank you for being one of those warriors. We appreciate it, brother. We look forward to catching up with you down the road. Thanks, guys. God bless y'all. Appreciate y'all. That was Josh Burkeen on the phone. Appreciate him calling in for the program today. And, uh, guys, that should give people hope. We can get more and more members of Congress just like him, and that means getting good things done just like those 20 did. And we need to f- celebrate when they get a victory like they've done. And I love the fact that he is so principle-driven that he points out how bad Republicans have been in spending in the Senate worse than the House. Now, Democrats are way more, but he doesn't give anybody a pass on this. He thinks the principles are right. You should be principle-driven. I love the fact that he's really working on on getting back to last year's budget, which, as he said, that's only 1% to 2%. But, man, if you can do that for 10, 15 years, you're cutting the budget in a significant manner. So it it is really good to hear him fixated on things like that. And he's in a position where they've already, and I love the fact they're already talking about what to do to get the Senate over to their side. What do they need to do to get the Senate to agree to budget cuts as opposed to letting the Senate drive the ship, which is what's happened way too many times. So there's just a lot of good stuff that Josh has covered there. It's good to hear. It's really encouraging. Well, folks, you can expect more interviews like that throughout the year because we've got a lot of great leaders now at the local and state and federal level, and we're going to bring them to you and give you a chance to hear from them and be encouraged. We sure appreciate you listening today. You've been listening to Wobble. We stand on this.